So friends, good morning. It's good to be with you today in this Easter season. Um, I find myself, I'm like a little tired this morning. I'm like, hi, happy Easter. But inside, I'm full of joy because this is a special time in the church year where we really dig into resurrection and celebrating the risen Christ. And it's also another journey because we are now journeying towards Pentecost, which is going to be, uh, it's 50 days after Easter, and that's where we celebrate uh, the Spirit falling on us. So um, we have a particular journey we're going to be going through here at Wellspring over the next uh, several weeks leading up to Pentecost. And we'll talk a little bit more about that journey of reworking that we're going to be doing. But first, I just want to um, have you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, where we're going to be, or turn on your Bible app and go to Luke 24. We'll read it in a minute. Um, And as you get there, I'll give you a little bit of time to get there because we have some context and stuff to work through. And let me move this uh, because it's getting in the way of my Bible and my notes. I want to be able to read those things. Um, So eight years ago, Dan and I were um, just beginning work, um, beginning serving at a new church. And Dan was the associate pastor there, and I was doing some worship pastoring work. And um, actually, we actually attended our, our new small group before the first Sunday I was serving there as worship leader. So we attended our small group. It was really great. We met all these people. And then on Sunday morning, you know, after, after a time of singing, it was a time of greeting, and I'm, I recognize one of, the, one of the guys from our small group, and I go up to him, and I give him a big hug. And I'm like, Doug, it's so nice to see you. I was so happy to meet you and your wife this past week. And I noticed he looked really confused. He was just kind of standing there with this blank look on his face. And I realized that I was just, like, hugging and talking to totally the wrong person. It was, it was not Doug. It was not Doug. <laughs> it was David. <laughs> totally different guy. And then there, in this, in this situation, I kind of make like an, a slightly awkward situation, like on my first day of work. I make it even a little bit more awkward, because then my unfiltered self says, right, growing up in the Philippines, I wasn't surrounded by a lot of white people. And so I said, I'm sorry, all white guys look alike to me. <laughs> oh... Oh, it was true, but how terrible. <laughs> There's science done on that, right? With the faces you, you grow up with, you're surrounded by, you're, you're uh, more likely for you to pick out difference. Oh my goodness, so embarrassing. So thankfully, you know, we wound up becoming friends with this family and him, and he didn't hold it against me. Um, and uh, <laughs> although it's a somewhat a silly story, right? I didn't recognize him for who he was. He was a stranger. I thought he was someone else. You know, it can be a little bit more serious. There can be more import when you, when you don't recognize someone or you don't recognize the situation for what it truly is. Um, like the time I got into the wrong car in the gas station, I thought the white guy there was my grandpa. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> That happened. Um, or the time there was a fire in my college, in my college dorm, and I was so tired that in my sleepy haze, I did not recognize the piercing sounds as a fire alarm. And so my RA literally had to come and get me out of bed as the fire department came in. There was literally a fire in the common room from like a microwave or something. So it can be a more serious thing, right? When you don't recognize the situation, you don't recognize um, a person or, or what's in front of you. There can be implications to it. And today's story that we're looking at in Luke 24, it centers around two disciples, around a couple who needed a little bit of help to recognize someone they did know but just couldn't perceive. They needed some inner reworking to recognize Jesus. Now, as we turn, and some of you are already there in your text, 
Some of you already know what story this is. This passage in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 and onwards. The story of the disciples on the Emmaus Road. So today, as we read through it together, I'm going to try to slow it down, and I invite you to picture it with me. I'm going to invite you to slow it down. Now, this is not a prescriptive passage in Scripture, which means um, no one's being told to do anything here. Right? There's no commands. Like, it's not like there's a passage in, in Paul, and they're saying, you know, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Like, this isn't Jesus saying, do not judge. This is just a story, so it's a descriptive passage. So I invite you to enter the story, see how Jesus talks and how the disciples respond and their dynamic together, and I invite you to put yourself in the story too, because scripture is not just some dry, dusty words on the page, right? There's actually, we believe this is one of the great mysteries of our faith. We believe that there is actually the living word of God, who is Jesus, and that the Spirit can pick up these words on the page and fill them with God's own reality to speak to us. So I invite us to do that today, um, or to attempt to do that today, as we approach this text, to let the living word breathe on us. Now, just the context for this, this takes place the very first Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, in the late afternoon. And uh, just to zoom out a little bit, it had been a very traumatic, it had been one hell of a week. It had been terrible. All these things had happened that were just horrible and life-altering to the disciples and to Jesus. Right? They had hoped that he was the anointed one of God, and then here he is being betrayed by one of their inner circle. Being betrayed by one of their inner circle, handed over to the, to the Romans, given a sham of a trial, then, then lynched, murdered, hung up on a tree. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. They, couldn't, they could barely contain themselves as they're walking down the street. Walking home, it is so hard and heavy. Luke 24, 13. On that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. While they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. They were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, what are you talking about as you go along? They stopped, their faces downcast. Can you picture the scene? All they had hoped for, gone. Even their physical postures impacted. Their faces are downcast. Can you remember times in your life you felt like that? Your hopes have been dashed. Perhaps you're just sad and tired after doing a lot of caregiving. Maybe you have news of a life-altering diagnosis. Maybe the the job you hoped for has fallen through. Maybe the stock market has changed and a lot of what you were depending on for retirement is gone. Maybe you're waking up and realizing that your marriage has ended. Here in our text, the disciples are despondent. Their faces are downcast. But they're talking, they're wrestling, and Jesus joins them on their journey and draws them out. What are you talking about, Jesus says. What are you talking about as you walk along? Verse 18, the one named Cleopas replied, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place there over the last few days? He, that's Jesus, said to them, what things? They said to him, 
the things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago, but there's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came to us saying they had even seen a vision of angels who told them he is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women said. They didn't see him. Friends, here Jesus asked the disciples to share what is on their mind and hearts as they walk along. Jesus was beside you right now. What would you want to say to him? What would you want to say to him? What stands out to me about what they share is the words we had hoped, right? They're sharing their hopes and their dashed hopes. This past week, I met with my friend Gabby, who um, we are in the same child loss community together. And she remembers the exact moment that she knew her son, Grayson, would not be able to survive, that he would die of cancer. She remembers that exact moment. I think we all have exact moments in our lives where we realized that our hopes were not going to come true. I'm guessing on a big or a small scale, many of us know exactly what we would be talking about if we were walking alongside Jesus, if he came alongside us and asked us what we're talking about. If you're not so sure of what you'd say, if you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure about any dashed hopes, I'm not really sure what I'd say, my question for you is, what are you talking about over and over again? What do you find yourself ruminating around in your mind or talking with a partner or trusted friend about? Do you keep going back to have the same conversations again and again, meaningfully try to to parse them out, trying to make sense of something? Maybe you have conversations about the economy or about the state of our politics things that are going on in the world, or war. Maybe you're having theological conversations or conversations about your faith or your church experience. Maybe you're having conversations about the same old things happening at work. What is an ongoing conversation you are having? If Jesus was coming alongside you, saying, what are you talking about? What would you want to say? Moving back to the text, Jesus enters the conversation as a co-journeyer, as a good listener. Right? The whole part of their conversation is Jesus coming alongside, Jesus asking questions, even questions that might sound a little stupid. Like one of the disciples is like, are you kidding me? Do you really not know what's going on? <laughs> it just shows how wonderful Jesus is to be like, tell me what things, tell me in your own words your experience. It's a wonderful way of modeling how to have conversations together. And then here now, though, the, it kind of takes a turn, right? Let's go ahead and look at this. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, you foolish people. <laughs> Your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he interpreted for them all the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through the prophets. Now, friends, when I read this, I have to chuckle because Jesus does not mince words. I'm like, Jesus, where is your gentle startup? Look at him. He's like, you foolish people. I'm like, dang. 
That's when I'd be like, yeah, we're not really talking to this person anymore. I mean, have you ever been someplace, you strike up a conversation on the plane, or if you're on the bus next to someone, and then you realize you really don't want to talk to them, like kind of like edging away? I can just see the disciples being there like, Ew, is there another way to get to Emmaus? <laughs> And yet something in them, maybe it's because they know Jesus and have journeyed with him before, something in them rises up. Maybe it's the dynamic between disciple and and teacher. Something rigorous comes up in them. Maybe it's the dynamic of having wrestled with things before with someone who loves and respects you, whom you love and respect. Maybe it's just simply the tone of Jesus' voice. I don't know, but for whatever reason, they don't like react, they don't run away, they don't go and hide, they don't slowly edge away from the conversation, but they actually, it fully engages them. They're right there. Now, we've already established that these two disciples don't recognize Jesus. The thing is, they have a lot of opportunities to recognize him. I mean, the text tells us there's what? Seven miles, it's like 10 to 12 kilometers, from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. And unless you're a really speedy walker, you have many minutes to talk. For me, that seven-mile walk would take more time than I (laughs) would like to admit. (laughs) Uh, It would take too much time. Uh, So they're there. They're not speeding because they're sad. They have a lot of opportunity to recognize Jesus, and yet they don't. I mean, can you imagine if someone you loved came back from the grave, someone you missed, and they're there, right, like sitting next to you here in church, or, you know, you're drinking your soft drink on a plane headed home from a conference, and they're, they're there sitting next to you, or maybe, you know, you're, you're on your commute home, and they're pulling up in the car beside you. There's this really tension in the text between this broad reality of this truth in the world that the living Jesus is there with them in their own lived reality. They don't recognize him. There's this tension there. And I wonder, what is that? I want to lean into that a little bit. Verse 16 says this, they were prevented from recognizing him. So I think we got to ask ourselves, why? What, what was preventing them? And there's a couple ways to interpret this. Right, either God is supernaturally preventing them from recognizing Jesus, maybe so God can teach them a lesson, which kind of seems mean-spirited to me. Why would you do that to grieving people? That doesn't sound like the God I see in Scripture. Or maybe, and this is the way I interpret this passage, maybe something in them was keeping them from recognizing Jesus. Maybe there was some internal barrier in place that made it difficult to see Jesus for who he truly was. I mean, one of those barriers could have just been in the the impossibility factor, right? I mean, they had seen Jesus die. They had seen his body. They know that it went into a tomb. Why would they ever expect this person next to them to be Jesus? Of course they wouldn't. They couldn't recognize him until something in them shifted to allow for the possibility of their seeing him, truly seeing him. They needed some reworking. There was some reworking needed to make recognizing Jesus possible. In our text, what reworking needed to be done? What reworking needed to happen? Well, in our scripture passage for today, we're about to read, continuing in the story, some of their beliefs actually needed to be reworked. 
needed to be taken apart and deconstructed and reconstructed. Some interpretations of scripture they had always believed in needed to be taken apart. And Jesus initiates this process. So as they walk and talk together, something in them shifts and opens up. Verse 28. When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. After he took seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us? Friends, the disciples needed to rework some of their beliefs, some of their assumptions, so that by the time they sat down at the table with Jesus, they could recognize him for who he truly was. The question for you, what do you need to wrestle with so you can better recognize the living Jesus with you? What do you need to take apart? What do you need to reconsider or rework? What do you need to deconstruct, right? The disciples, they needed to rework some of their beliefs. They needed to rework some of their assumptions in order to get to the point where they could recognize Jesus. What do you need to rework? Some of you here in person or perhaps listening online have had a wonderful journey of faith. Whether you know Jesus from an early age or later in life, it's just been a meaningful and impactful journey and experience in your life. You've experienced newness and change and God's good growth in you as you've been formed. You've had good experiences in your churches, in your communities of faith. And let me tell you, I celebrate that. I long for more of that in your life and in all of our lives. Thank you for listening as I now speak to another group of people who's also listening today. Some of you perhaps grew up in the faith. Maybe your parents are Christians, sent you to Bible school or Sunday school or Christian schools. And yet, as you've gotten older, you're realizing a lot of the things you you were taught were kind of mixed in with things that were not of God, things that muddied the water, things that actually made your life of faith as it grew very difficult. I grew up in the midst of purity culture in the 90s. So I got like a whole purity ring from my dad. I promised to be chaste until I got married, which I kept that covenant. And then I promptly lost the ring, which I was really sad about because it had these little rubies on it. It was like a wonderful ring. I'm still sad about losing that ring. But the problem with purity culture is that it placed a lot of like restrictions on women as opposed to men. So it, it really made a lot of women who are now my age in their 40s kind of deconstructing and realizing, wow, a lot of what I was taught about my body, about how I dress, about how I present myself, that actually was more due to like cultural and, and uh, bias and input and, and people's own prejudice and expectations of how women should be than actually about the Jesus way of being a humble and others honoring person. Instead, you're given all this responsibility to be uh, responsible for other people's thought lives, be responsible for their, even their sex lives. A lot of that was placed on women in purity culture in the 90s. That's just one little thing I got to deconstruct going older as I worked through anorexia, my own views about my body, and then more importantly, my views on women. 
Because you see, not only did I grow up in purity culture, but I grew up at a, in a place where women, uh, women were seen and celebrated in church. And so were men. And yet, there were distinct differences between what women and men could do. Women were seen and celebrated up to a point. The denomination that sent my parents out did not believe in the ordination of women. And so I grew up with a sense of call. I wrote my first sermon when I was eight years old. <laughs> I don't think it was very good. You don't want to hear it. I think I wrote it on the power of the tongue. <laughs> wow, that's something for an eight-year-old, right? Um, and yet, no one to share it with. I struggled inside with this until I was in my 20s. And I was in a community of people who deeply valued scripture and said, you know what? Let's look at that again. Did you know that it hasn't always been interpreted that way? And did you know there's actually tons of streams of the Christian faith that interpret this totally differently? And did you know if you go back to the early church, this was not their practice? And did you know that in the Greek, oh my goodness, my world was deconstructed and reconstructed again. And Jesus was in that process calling me showing up for me. One day I opened my eyes and there in my vocation journey I could recognize Jesus calling me to feed his sheep. Friends, whatever your deconstruction journey may look like, if you're in that group of people I'm talking to, whatever you're wrestling with may look like, know that God, Jesus' own self, is with you in it, coming alongside you, coming with you as you look through the scriptures, going with you through the scriptures to look at them again and say, where is it written? What does it really mean? So you can get to a place where you can better see the living resurrection work of God at work in the world. So you can go be vibrant witnesses here in this world because you've undergone some inner shifts, inner changes that have allowed you to better recognize Jesus. What I find interesting in all this is that it's a deep honor to wrestle with scripture. Actually, if you look at God's people through space and time, the Hebrew people considered it a high mark of respect to wrestle with the scriptures. So actually, if you go back and look through the Old Testament, they kept different books alive that actually have sort of different visions for life together. Like you look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they have this vision for life after exile. So remember, God's people, their, their buildings had been destroyed, their cities razed to the ground, they had been carted off into far-off empires for exile, they were spread out in a diaspora. And some books like Ezra and Nehemiah said, we need to return, we need to rebuild, we need to only marry Jewish people, this is the way we will be preserved. In other books, like Esther said, you can be in the middle of the empire. You can even marry a Gentile, and God can preserve you where you are. So these books at the time, they had very different people rooting for them. And yet, the Jewish people of faith, the people of God, kept both these visions. They said there's something sacred and holy here. We recognize in these differing visions God's own word. So we have, friends, in our history, in the history even of our scriptures, people's wrestling and reworking. They celebrated it. They saw it as high honor. Can we do some of the same? When people come alongside you, if you're not doing any deconstructing and you're like, I don't really know what to do about this, what might it look like for you to have some honor and some, some openness to say, what are you talking as you go along? 
Where, where is Jesus for you in this? Because however you, you come to the story today, there's something in it for you, something in it for me. Sometimes people think that if they're deconstructing, they have to do it away from the church. They have to do it away from the people of faith. And yet here, Jesus invites the disciples to do that with him. So I'd like to invite you, if you are on your own reworking journey, come, do that in community. If you're wondering where it is written and you're wrestling with some scripture text you're having a hard time with or there's some interpretations you're not sure about, come, let's do that in community. Your questions don't have to be threatening. Your questions are not threatening. The disciples, their, their little beliefs did not threaten the living God at work in them who was reworking so they could recognize. Now, you might ask, what is the fruit of this? Right? Does it result in just you know, endless questions or a dead faith? Well, in our story, they don't wind up more discouraged. They don't wind up more confused. When they finally reach home and they recognize Jesus, right, this internal work they've done in their minds and their hearts, you know, suddenly comes to fruition. They see Jesus. They don't wind up more disillusioned or confused. You know what they wind up? They wind up vibrant witnesses. If you go on and read the rest of the chapter, they, they're elated. In fact, they're so excited they want to go back and tell their friends. They are witnesses to the risen Jesus. So they literally get up. This is like what? It's evening time now. The sun has set. They go back and they walk the seven miles back to Jerusalem. And I have a funny feeling it took them shorter time to get there than it did from the slowly walk to Emmaus. They are transformed. Some inner shift has created this newness, this openness to God's possibilities, this desire to share it. In fact, their reworking and their deconstructing as they saw Jesus in it led them to be equipped to be better witnesses of Jesus living in active work in the world. And that can be the end goal, too, of our deconstruction, of our wrestling, as we do it in community, as we get to the point where we can recognize Jesus. This is part of the equipping. This is part of what we need to then go be vibrant witnesses to God's living work here in the world. As I mentioned earlier, we are in this, the series of time uh, before Pentecost. We're in Eastertide. And um, we're going to be going through a new series called Rework. <laughs> Rework. And each Sunday um, in this Rework series as we lead up to Pentecost, we're going to look at something that God wants to be reworking in us. Some kind of inner shift or change that needs to take place so we can be better equipped, better reconciled, restored, redeemed, uh, as we reemerge and um, reengage with each other. And what other R words are there? There's so many RE words. So we're going to be looking at those for the next seven weeks. And it's not just about doing work. This is also about giving ourselves to the God who is at work in us, forming us, giving us what we need, gently journeying with us on our journey, sometimes uh, turning up the heat a little bit on our journey <laughs> as we rework and are renewed together as we recognize Jesus. About nine years ago, um, the art world was really surprised by this uh, um, discovery made in Sforza Castle in, I think it's in Milan area in Italy. And the building of this castle was being worked on after many years of disrepair. And they have all these like, you know, arched ways and all these different rooms. And they're going back and they're working on and reworking different rooms. And then a discovery was made 
workers were chipping away at all these like peeling layers of whitewash. Like in some places up to 17, 17 layers of whitewash. They're peeling away at them when they discover behind it something that has not been seen for 500 years. It was a Da Vinci masterpiece. Apparently, Leonardo da Vinci had done this beautiful painting. It's kind of hard to see. They did some work restoring it, reworking it. You can see the layers of whitewash right after the paneling. And this right here is a huge, huge um, uh, painting of mulberry trees and of nodding trunks. And it's just this uh, awe-inspiring work that has been right there, (laughs) present for 500 years, and yet not, not recognizable. Took some work, some reworking, some removal, some, some shifts before it could be seen for what it is. Friends, as you give God consent to come into your life, Jesus is present with you even when you cannot see or recognize him. Even when you think that it's an impossibility for Jesus to be there with you at this part in your journey. Jesus is there. What might need to be reworked, de- and reconstructed in you so you can recognize him? Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize your presence even here with us right now. We recognize your risen presence, that you are the resurrected God who nothing could hold back, no barriers keep you bound, no distance too great, internally or externally. Bring us to a place, Lord, rework what needs to be reworked in us. Deconstruct and reconstruct what needs to be shifted around, what needs to be unveiled and revealed so that we can see you, so we can receive you, so we can be your witnesses. Come into our lives in new and fresh ways. We open our mind to you. We open those things that are hard for us to let go of, those thought processes that have been there for a long time, those areas of resistance. We offer those to you. We pray, risen Jesus, that you reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.